Tonight's reading is from John 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, I have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs, in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The word of the Lord. So, we've made it past the darkest day of the year, and we're alive. We made it. At least all of us are here. I mean, I don't actually know how you're feeling deep inside, but you're breathing. That's not nothing, really. You're alive. The light is inching against the darkness. Tomorrow we celebrate MLK. You know, people used to die in the depth of winter when the food supplies ran out or the wood had all been burned, freeze to death. Some still do. Maybe breathing is enough reason to celebrate. This is the second week of Epiphany when the church celebrates the light of Jesus coming into the world. But if that seems too abstract or diffuse or impossible to see, you know what? Celebrating the light isn't even something you actually have to manufacture. A little more vitamin D, a little more serotonin to the brain. You might not even be conscious of it, but your neurotransmitters are starting a little party in your brain. Well, maybe not quite. But I do love that the Christian liturgical calendar is tied to the rhythms of the planet, to the amount of light in our days. Christmas comes just after the darkest day of the year, epiphany when you can tell that the light is really starting to return, and Lent then when it seems that even if the light's starting to return, the winter will last forever, and then Easter on that Sunday that follows the first full moon of the spring equinox? Really, I can hardly wait. It's not like I have to pretend that that will be exciting, as if it was some religious duty. My cells, my joints, olfactory, visual, all my bodily senses will rejoice, even if it's outside my conscious awareness. We're always being transformed by what surrounds us. 
the amount of moisture in the air, light. We need it to survive. On the darkest day of the year, the Incas tried to tie down the sun. I don't know how they thought they would manage that, but I totally understand the desire. Zoroastrian solstice rituals included staying, all up, uh, staying up all night to read poetry. In Greece, wild women tore the god Dionysius to pieces and ate him, so they say. Celebrations of the light returning took so many diverse forms because the dark is really hard to deal with. So the church placed the Feast of Epiphany on a date that coincided with the festival of the Egyptian god Isis. That festival included all manner of revelry, couth and uncouth. The Romans layered Christian festivals over traditional religious practices all the time. Instead of worrying about how the Christian meaning supplants all these vestiges of indigenous meaning, I think it'd be in the spirit of the season of epiphany, of universality, of a God whose love knows no boundaries, to imagine how the grace of God might at times be like a good wine, so good that it offers the greatest possible sensory enjoyment. That seems at least unlikely, if not vaguely irresponsible. But it would be in the spirit of the Gospel of John, with its metaphors of this thirst-quenching water and this bread that satisfies every hunger. John doesn't give us a birth story. It gives us the one who always was and is, the one through whom all things were made, Inca's light, endorphins, vitamin D. The author of John makes these really enormous claims about Jesus in the first chapter. And then suddenly, in the second chapter, the life and the light of the world through whom everything was made is at a wedding, a family thing. A thing so human and sort of intimate, something with sex and death and failure and hope, all sort of writhing under the surface. There's wedding imagery all over the Bible. In Isaiah, the land is married to God, who delights in her like a young man who marries a virgin. It's sort of a racy metaphor, honestly. God is married to the land and delights in it, not like an old married couple delights in each other, but like the first blush of some erotic joy. Scripture is so weird (laughs) and interesting. When some of the writers imagine the most passionate hope for what's to come, the great eschatological hope beyond time when the end of ordinary reality happens, they imagine these enormous amounts of good wine. Amos says the mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. Isaiah imagines the consummations of, consummation of God's kingdom 
as God making this feast of rich food for all people. A feast, he says, of well-aged wine. Yum. Three sentences into the story of the wedding at Cana, Jesus' mom says they have no wine. No wine. It seems like a pronouncement of doom and gloom and darkness and winter and joyless hopelessness. And it was. Not just an enormous social disgrace, but kind of a bad sign for the couple. And you know, For all their festivity, there's also a subtext of anxiety in most weddings I've been involved in. And is it really just about the details of the event, about caterers and cutlery? I doubt it. Two beings are committing their lives to something that the exact nature of is yet to be determined, till death do them part. I've hardly ever experienced a wedding, and I've done quite a few of them, that isn't a mix of joyful and tense. This is the first glimpse we have of Jesus' mother in the Gospel of John. And the first words she utters, they have no wine. It's almost like a lament. The only other time we encounter her in this Gospel is at the foot of the cross where her son dies. It's like she's this figure who appears at these, who appears at these archetypal, quintessential moments of human anxiety. Death and the moment the wine runs out. Some Protestant interpreters put off by Romanist reverence of Mary use this passage as evidence that Mary wasn't really worth all this veneration. Like, she was too irritable? Or pedestrian? I don't see that. She certainly doesn't come across here as a naive young mother gazing adoringly into the eyes of her sweet infant. Or as a subservient and worshipful maiden of the Lord. She doesn't worship her son, though I'm sure that she loves him like mad. She thinks he should make himself useful, help these people in this real moment in their real lives. I mean, if he can't really help anyone, what would be the point? Grandeur and greatness, who really cares? What good does that do? Maybe this is her teaching her son to forgo that whole male ego scene. I like her here. I think Jesus maybe doesn't come come off all that great. Right here this time. Every commentary I read insists that Jesus' reply to his mother is not impatient or disrespectful. In many translations... He says to his mom, woman, what do you have to do with me? Isn't probably as good a translation as something more like what we read tonight. What does that have to do with you or me? But still, it sort of feels like his agenda or whatever, his purpose, 
is more important to him, or he thinks it is, than the life of this family. But Mary, she seems prescient, grounded, wise. She seems to disregard her son's dismissal, almost like she's not even really listening to him. Like maybe she knows something. However aloof or unresponsive or reluctant to disrupt his plans, Jesus may seem really his mother trusts him to begin his ministry here. And this first sign of a strange, wild grace will be crucial. She trusts him to do something about this situation, this archetypal anxiety that there's not enough wine or light or warmth or love, not enough to cover what the world needs, which is pretty vast. And even though Jesus says, it's not my time, he does seem to take directions from his mom to address the situation. And the way the story goes is pretty interesting. The life and the light of the world looks around and locates these containers that hold water, the water that the guests use to wash their hands. And he fills them miraculously with wine, good wine. He fills the containers meant to hold the water that people use to purify themselves with wine. It's a little bit like filling a foot bath with wine or the bathroom sink or pump bottles of Purell. (laughs) Like the faucets start running with wine, good wine. It is kind of strange and wild and a little bit funny and almost impolite somehow, maybe. You know, outrageous. Like, say you're at a big event and there's a lot of people, and it's sort of a time when everyone is sensitive to bacteria or Ebola. You know, just something that makes people want to be careful about washing their hands. Washing hands is the polite thing, safe thing. And Jesus goes around and fills up the hand sanitizers with good wine? I mean, are people grateful? Or are they like, what the hell? (laughs) I don't know if I'd want to drink wine, even good wine, out of a hand sanitizer. Or a foot bath. Or a sink. It's like a beautiful move. And it's also really kind of messing with things. What a great combination. Listen to a speech by MLK. We have all sorts of rituals that are important to us, our religious practice, or just how we think that one should properly conduct themselves in the world, how one must conduct themselves in the world. Stop at stop signs, cough into your elbow, wash your hands, put your money in a bank, even if it is a Wall Street monstrosity. We have laws that it seems important for people to obey. Jesus takes an important vehicle for the law, and he doesn't exactly blow it up. But, well, 
He fills it with wine. I'm not sure how we might apply this sort of spirit to civil disobedience, but I think it wouldn't be a bad thing to contemplate. John sometimes isn't that big on narrative detail, but he's really thorough here in this passage. He tells us how many jars there were, what they were made of, how much each jar held. There are six 30-gallon containers. That's 180 gallons of really good wine. Sometimes commentators are worried about people reading this as if Jesus might be offending the religious people there at the wedding. It's not about offense, they say. It's about joy, generosity, abundance. Even so, maybe that is occasionally offensive to the religious people. Excess. Excessive joy, excessive generosity, excessive passion. I mean, excessive wine? Yeah. We generally respect moderation. Jesus is doing a miracle for the wedding party. He makes sure there's enough, but actually way more than enough. And I wonder how the caterers or the family or the bride and the groom would have reacted after they figured out that their jars for purification no longer had water for purification, but had wine in them. I wouldn't be surprised if their reaction was a little bit mixed. Something bursts out of the bounds of the expected, something delicious, generous, graceful, excessive life and love, good wine gushing out of the sink, or some righteous anger bursting through the doors. But what if you just wanted to wash your hands? There's a certain sense in which it might be that the sheer excess of the life and the love of God could be... I don't know, a little bit traumatic for us. Maybe we don't always choose to drink it. We look the other way. Moderation is somehow a little more comfortable. Excess is an offense. Garish. Rococo. Jesus continues to come off this sort of wild way throughout John. A little out there, a little too something a little bit much for the dominant ideology to bear. Talking to the Samaritan woman, he isn't even supposed to talk to a woman, much less a foreigner, much less ask for a drink from her jar, talk about water that, that quenches thirst. Jesus really doesn't stay in the bounds. He's practically unseemly. He says eat my body and drink my blood. Maybe sometimes a good wine is something that we might resist a little bit, balk at. I don't know. You know, you've got the place cards for the reception. You decided on a nice white that went with the fish that you were serving. You were planning on a nice sort of moderate orderly affair. And then suddenly, gallons and gallons of some complex, robust red keeps coming endlessly to the table. 180 gallons? It's nice, but it messes with the order. The story 
is about a miracle of excess. And maybe we're more comfortable with moderation in all things, even grace. Maybe there's rules that we'd like God to follow, actually. Jesus comes around acting like this. No wonder the religious authorities wanted to kill him. He seems genuinely dangerous to the system, organization, institutions. I mean, really. The story is about the collision between the ministry of Jesus and the conventional order. The collision of the lush, living God with the conventions of humanity. The conventions we follow, we submit to, maybe without even really meaning to. It's economic necessity. It's a public school system conceived to make good workers of our children, not call into question the systems of oppression. We live subservient to these systems, though they are racist, though they favor the rich, though they threaten the life of the planet. Like living any other way seems impossible without profit-making corporations, without cell phones, fossil fuels. It doesn't seem realistic. Like changing water into wine. This passage is summoned in the traditional wedding liturgy to bless the couple when they're getting married. As you are gladdened, As you gladden the wedding in Cana of Galilee by the presence of your son, God, so by his presence now, bring your joy to this wedding. If you think of that, what a bold move. His joy? What's that going to be like? It's practically like inviting Dionysius to preside over your ceremony. Or inviting this anarchic spirit into this solemn occasion. I mean, watch out if that's what you're inviting. It's like unleashing the God of excessive life and love and grace, infinite boundary-breaking, undefinable, uncontainable, unleashing the human institution, crashing God into your little ceremony, your little ritual. I think that's what we do here with our little ritual. We drink that wine, the excessive love. And it might be a little traumatic to drink the death of death and thus the sheer excess of life. Maybe that's why we have just a little. It might rattle the ledge where all your jars are set up neatly But come and drink the life and the love of Christ.